This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. The BFM Breakfast Grill, connecting you to the top people and ideas. Powered by U-Mobile. BFM 89.9, I'm Chong Jensan and this is The Breakfast Grill. The late Lee Kuan Yew once said, if you deprive yourself of outsourcing and your competitors do not, you're putting yourself out of business. SciComm MSE Berhad has evolved from being just a call centre provider to now an end-to-end service provider in business process outsourcing. The market globally is projected to grow by a compounded annual growth rate of 9% from 2022 to 2030. Is SciComm in a sweet spot to capitalise on this trend or has it been losing share to competitors? Joining us in the studio is Datuk Sri Leo Arya Nayakam, CEO of SciComm MSC Berhad. Thank you for joining us this morning. Datuk Sri, I know the last time you were on the grill was 2015 when you likened SciComm to a mini Accenture. The market capitalization then was 7 to 800 million and it has since halved to about 350 million now, while your net profit in 2015 was 32 million, which is about the same level as it is now. Is the market telling us something or has SciComm business changed? that investors question the premium it used to pay. No, you're right. I think uh, one of the things that uh, in 2015, yes, we had a profit of 32 million, but in 2015, we also had a full uh, tax-free status at the time as well. So what we have today is uh, very similar numbers. But interestingly, the the market doesn't seem to, uh, to reflect. I mean, we have always been more of a dividend stock as opposed to a um, capital gain stock. But the issue here is that uh, I think uh, the market is under undervaluing us. I think that's something that is very clear. Um, we've only had a great track record. Uh, we've paid dividends from day one. We've been profitable from day one. And we are only seeing, uh, from 2015, we have seen only an uptake. Uh, in our, we, we went down a little bit um, in 2018, but then from then till now, we have only seen an increase in revenue and profit and we're coming back to the the numbers that we were around at that time. Uh, our, our proposition proposition is only growing. Uh, we have become a full service provider, uh, a solutions provider actually. Now it's gone. You know, it is literally uh, a company that has now progressed beyond just uh, basic call centers. So the way that everything has been working, we've always focused on having two types of business. One business is a typical contact center where we have uh, premier customer care, technical support, associated fulfillment. Uh, that has morphed into more of a solution set as well in itself because now you have to look at uh, process reengineering, RPA, robotic process automation, AI, um, omnichannel presence, uh, lots of different channels that you, you can communicate with. So that has gone, has made a big difference in the way that we proposition uh, solutions to clients. Uh, they look to us as their consultants. And then the second thing is that we have also morphed into more of a software s- solution and service company where we provide uh, enterprise-type solutions for GovTech, uh, digitizing governments, as well as looking at how we can provide large corporates with re-engineering uh, processes and enterprise solutions, even in the, in this space, for instance, in, uh, in MedTech. So these are the two me- big areas that we have gone into. We, have, we maintain our traditional outsourcing, and that has actually now taken off in a big way. Uh, we have always focused on having a client base out of Asia-Pacific that had customers in Asia-Pacific. Now the focus has, has morphed into 
you know, taking care of the, making sure that there's an arbitrage play. So where we get business from the US, uh, Australia, the UK, Europe, and we deliver out of our centers in Asia. So we also have something called Cycom Global Connect, where the pandemic has made a big difference in how we, we work. So we are actually now in 14 different countries with you know, staff, over 700 staff in all these different countries, where we don't necessarily have to have a huge center uh, where we are working from home. Uh, so we have 700 locations with 700 staff. Uh, foreign staff in 14 different countries. So that has you know, morphed into a different type of hybrid outsourcing model as well. All this augurs well for how we position ourselves. And the arbitrage is very clear. If I'm getting business from the US and delivering it out of uh, low-cost centers around Asia, there is a larger margin. So we see yeah. our margins increasing. Tatosri, I'd like to maybe uh, drill in uh, on your main business segment first. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you talked about it extensively just now, but in terms of BPO, it showed a 26% growth for your financial 22. Mm-hmm. Quite impressive. The key revenue drivers were integrated solutions in customer lifecycle management, digital e-commerce, e-government solutions. So can you walk us through what is driving growth for some of these divisions? No, I think everybody is looking. You know, that's a huge market in the outsourcing business. I mean, especially in the West. I mean, the, the gig, gig economy has really taken off. Uh, a lot of people around the world are having a problem in being able to source uh, uh, people. You know, you can AI. You know, everybody says can do everything. Yes, they can. It can handle a lot of repetitive type of work, but AI still can't take care of customer care. So the issue is, uh, and across the world, you've had, you have situations where uh, there is a, there's been a real requirement. There's a huge supply-demand mismatch in terms of what is required in the West for customer care and what they can supply because they're not getting into the space. So there's a huge requirement in better lo- uh, in low-cost centers okay. across the world. Okay. So that's where I think there's a huge advantage for us. So you still need that soft touch for customer care. Absolutely. But Asia manages to, to do it without that soft touch. I wouldn't want to comment on <laughs> right. their customer care strategy. All right. So Tatut Sri, um, what are your top five clients uh, in BPO now and how much do they contribute to revenue? Is there any concentration risk? In our business, there's always, uh, I mean, I can't really disclose the top, top five clients, but in our business, there's always concentration risk. The sad thing is that I can't go to a client that is doing, we are doing well for, and suddenly they say, hey, listen, I need to have another 300 or 400 or 500 people. I will never go to them and say, oh, sorry, I can't do that because I have to maintain uh, uh, your revenue at a certain mm-hmm. percentage of my total. Uh, that really doesn't work. So typically what happens is that we have clients that will come to us, we do well for them, they increase and we would take that business. And the trick then is to get more and more of those clients. So over the years, we've had more and more of these clients. So the concentration list has lessened. Uh, but you know, our target is to, let's say, have one client having 15% of revenue, for instance. But that doesn't detract us from going in, increasing that if we have to. <laughs> All right. Understood. So in terms of your uh, strategy, in terms of targeting clientele to grow your business, um, I know in the past you mentioned that uh, it is to target MNCs with a local presence and governments, which are the biggest outsourcers in this, in this world. Has this changed? No, I think, you know, the, the, well, the target markets have changed. Uh, remember, I was telling you that, you know, we were focused on Asia-Pacific uh, customer base, uh, clients that had a customer base in Asia-Pacific, or they had multinationals that had a customer base in Asia-Pacific. Now we are focusing a lot on our business, and there's a huge demand for it, where there is a customer base in the West, 
uh, that requires delivery out of the east or in lower, lower cost centers. So we find that 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 um, we are looking now at very large conglomerates out of the U.S., out of the U.K., out of Australia, um, out of Europe that require delivery uh, from uh, Malaysia and Sri Lanka and other places where we are present. All right. But for foreign markets, are you still adopting the private financing initiative model uh, when you target the government sector? And how has that worked out for you? No, that has worked out really well. I mean, that, uh, to answer the question, yes, it, 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 this is exactly how we do it. Uh, the great thing about it is that, you know, we have um, more, almost almost uh, 50 uh, software engineers, for instance, in our organization. So that's a pretty large uh, contingent of people. And this is, this is, we have been very focused and, and um, uh, we've actually invested in an R&D center, both here and in Sri Lanka. So what has happened with that is that we've been able to create our own IP. And that has been a huge, made a huge difference because, you know, we're offering software as a service to developing nations, right, for digitizing government. So that makes a big difference when we go to market and say, hey, I'm going to be able to provide you a complete solution from a service and a software perspective. And guess what? The software is our software. It's not something that I have to go and buy. I don't have to go to the, the large names like Oracle and IBM and Microsoft and buy these softwares and, or go to somebody and say, can you build something for me? I built it all in-house. So these are, this is where it makes a big difference. We have a huge amount of IP that we have created ourselves. Things like border management solutions, identity management solutions, EKYC solutions, medtech solutions, our own ERM, which is electronic records management solutions. These are all IPs we built in-house, and that's worth a lot of money, which we have not actually productized and monetized yet, but that is what we have as a, as a clear advantage. I see. What would be, the, say, the margin differential for a company who doesn't have this IP and a company which does... Oh, it's literally 50%. Okay, that's a lot. Yeah. So I would like to maybe touch on um, uh, impending slowdown and recession. Mm -hmm. uh, do you sense that customers are taking a more cautious approach now? And what segments within business process outsourcing appear the most vulnerable? It's, that's an interesting question because, you know, in our, in our business, we, we are almost recession-free in a sense because, you know, we're in so many different verticals. We're in airlines, we're in... Uh, Hospitality. We are in F and B. We are in um, uh, uh, high tech. Uh, all kinds of different industries. So, can you imagine what happened with the airline industry, for instance, when uh, when the pandemic hit us? So, we had two major airlines, and then obviously that made a difference. But then now you have a huge reversal in that because we have now we cannot handle the volumes <laughs> because everybody's back to flying. Uh, same thing with um, the hospitality industry. So that has also changed. But things like e-commerce, where we are also prevalent, e-commerce took off in a big way. So during the pandemic, e-commerce was a huge thing. Airlines came down, e-commerce went up. So because we're in so many different verticals uh, and we are spread across that, there's, there's a natural hedge um, to be able to handle most recessions. I see. Your business is definitely capex light and it's about close to 80% of your total cost is staff cost. Mm -hmm. So how do you retain your talent pool in such a tight labor market? The more you pay, the longer they'll stay. So it's a, it's a well-paying well <laughs> company, I'm sure. No, I think one of the things that people don't realize is that when they come into this business, nobody wakes up when they're 12 years old and says, I'm going to be a contact center mm -hmm. director when I grow up. I mean, this is all a business we all fell into 
by mistake. Uh, and, but when they get into it, there's, there's, it's a very interesting business and it's a very fast uh, increase in terms of uh, progression. So for instance, you can come in at two and a half or 3,000 ringgit as an executive, then you become a team manager at 5,000 ringgit, then you are becoming a manager at starting at 8,000, 9,000 ringgit, 10,000 ringgit even. Then you're going to be a, a VP, you're 15, 15 and 20,000 ringgit. And then you're SVP already in the 30,000 plus. Uh, 40,000, 50,000 ringgit range. So, you know, this is a type of, uh, for management, it is a very, very lucrative uh, business to be in. So obviously that is just a function of how fast you can scale because everybody wants to become a VP, (laughs) right? Uh, So you, and you know, what we managed to do is that we managed to take our our junior people who are coming with prerequisite degrees and everything else who have got the brains and the raw intellect and they then have the experience, and then we progress progress them through the whole uh, the chain, and that has been very interesting for us because we have a lot of people. Our tenure in management has been very long, so it's that's how we've retained our people. Um, that was three. How is Psycom perceived in the market among your customers? Um, I know you mentioned just now you compete with the likes of some multinationals, but do you compete with the likes of Vets and Symphony and RSM as well? Not really, because we are focused on multinational clients, and you know we have a very uh, large pool of multinational clients, and uh, I think those guys typically focus on the local clients more. Um, in terms of your foreign markets for financial 21, 30 percent of Psycom's revenue came from foreign markets, with Philippines contributing the most at 14 percent, followed by China and Singapore. Have you progressed to penetrate the private sector in regional markets? And are you also looking at new markets to to tap on? Yes, as I said, we're looking at new markets, primarily the West. So we're looking at, you know, obviously there's there's a Singaporean market, there's a Australian market, a UK market, there's a Western Europe market, yes, Western Europe market, which is very interesting because Western Europe, like Scandinavia, for instance, looked at Latvia, Estonia, Ukraine, um, those type of countries in the past. And now, obviously, with the situation as it is, uh, they are moving those 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 service centers out, and we are one of the beneficiaries of that. On the breakfast grill this morning is Datuk Sri Lo Arya Nayakam, CEO of Saicom MSC Berhad. When we come back, we will speak to him on the education business, financials, and growth prospects. BFM eighty nine point nine. You are listening to the BFM Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U Mobile. BFM eighty nine point nine. Joining us in the studio is Datuk Sri Leo Arya Nayakam, CEO of Saicom MSC Berhad. Datuk Sri, I'd like to touch on your education business now. It looks quite insignificant, contributing mm-hmm. just 300,000 ringgit to group revenue, but it did grow six-fold year-on-year in financial 22. What, what are your long-term plans for this business and how significant can it be, say, over the next five years? So what has basically happened is when we first started the business, we were into, into it for our internal needs. Um, and then we said, hey, why don't we just take this and you know, uh, present it to... Uh, so we had a hybrid model where we looked at uh, short courses, we are focused on government-type deals where we looked at uh, trying to get some unemployable graduates into, into, into the workforce, et cetera, et cetera. That worked really well for us in, in the early years. And we've, I think, done over 15,000 um, Malaysian, unemplo- what was supposedly unemployable graduates and made them very employable after a th- two- or three-month course. And we had a 97% placement. That was really a fantastic way forward. Then what we found was that, as you know, these are all funded by government, et cetera, et cetera. And so what we found is that there was a there was a reduction in that type of uh, training requirement. 
and then we focus back again into our own requirements because we were growing also at a pace. We are over 3,000 people. We have a huge training requirement of ourselves and we focus inwardly. And now we, but then the next thing was, then we focus on typically continuous professional development, what we call that, uh, what we call CPD, which is focus on basically, let's say, you know, you are already employed. You are you need to have short courses to be able to better yourself, to be able to go up the ladder in your organization. Uh, those are the type of courses that we are focused on right now. And then we created our own e-learning platform. Okay. And that has been, that has also been very, uh, that was a huge requirement for us to do that because of the pandemic. Because remember what we had to do was we had to put 95% of our people at home. Uh, and, you know, we also have the situation where we have like global, global Connect, where we have over 700 staff uh, globally. So how do we find these staff? First of all, we're supposed to recruit them online. We're supposed to train them online and then manage them online. So we had to have a completely online presence to be able to do this, a nice hybrid model in terms of training as well. So that morphed into our whole e-learning system where we needed it internally and now we're taking that and saying, converted that and said, let's focus on the new age stuff. Because one of the things that makes the difference going forward is that there are going to be jobs that are going to be lost for to automation. So what do we do now with those people? We have to retrain them. So that are, that's what we are talking about. How can we retrain them in something that's more, how about us training them to understand the process of automation? How do we get them to uh, train that way? How do we make sure that they are focused on doing jobs of the future today? And that's the type of uh, learning we're looking at, you know, data scientists, um, AI, auto, uh, robotic process automation, functional specification design. All these things are the jobs of the future because you can't be looking at, because all these jobs that are repetitive in nature are going to be taken over by automation. I'm looking at your financial year 22 financials now. I mean, the headline numbers certainly look encouraging. Your revenue is up 23%. Your net profit is up 22% to $32 million, mm -hmm. and you raise dividends by $0.01 cent to $0.08. Cent. So what is the outlook for uh, the next financial year, financial 23? No, I, obviously, I think we are on an uptrend right now, as I said, you know, um, and we see ourselves uh, growing. Uh, we see ourselves uh, getting into new businesses as well. Uh, we think that uh, 2023 and 2024 are going to be very interesting years for us, and I think that's going to be reflected in our growth. Uh, by showing us, by showing significant growth. Um, as I said, we're not really focused on the share price or anything else. We're not in we're not on a stock. We're not interested in all that. We are focused on how, what are we doing in terms of bottom line? And, you know, as I, my channel always says, you know, top line is for vanity, bottom line is for sanity sort of thing. So we are focused on, um, on uh, bottom line and we are focused on giving out as much dividend as possible because, you know, at the moment we are close to what, over 80% in dividend payout of profits. So that is our focus area right now. So which brings me to your balance sheet. You have a net cash of 37 million, mm -hmm. no debt. Mm -hmm. Your cash flow generation looks strong. Mm -hmm. So why is Sycom sitting on so much cash? Are you on the lookout for potential m and or will, will you return more to shareholders in terms of dividends? What we find is that we need to have a healthy cash balance because one of the things that we do is, you know, you talked about earlier about the PFI, yeah. uh, privately funded initiatives. Uh, and, you know, we, we think that we are in a very good position to be able to get some of these government jobs, not only in Malaysia, but elsewhere. Uh, the way that we operate is that we would go and do all this ourselves. 
and provide the software as a, and a service uh, to the governments and then do a revenue share with them. To do that, though, you might need to have a little bit of money. So that could cost us another $5, $10 million for, for implementation, for instance. I don't want to be going to a bank and borrowing and all that's un- unnecessary. I need to have a little cash pile to be able to do all that when I, when I have to. Um, I'd like to touch on your share price performance now. Cycom share price, I mean, in terms of your valuations, it's trading at a quite attractive P of 11 times. Your earnings grew by more than 20% last year. Your dividend yield is above 7%. And I noticed that Cycom was also added to the FTSE for Good Bursa Malaysia Shara Index in June right. of this year. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not too shabby statistics at all, yet your share price is down 16% year to date. I mean, what is the market missing or why is Cycom still so unloved? I think one of the things that the market doesn't really understand is you know, where this business can go. Uh, you have to understand that uh, the businesses that we're going for uh, are actually hugely incremental in terms of value. I think one of the things that they've always asked me and said, hey, you know, when are you going to get your next government business? You know, uh, the, the sales cycles for these things are long, uh, but you know, we got derailed a little bit because of the pandemic. That we lost about two and a half years of that. Uh, but we are back on track in terms of being able to get that type of business. And all we need is one of those businesses to come in a year, and then you know you're doubling, tripling profits. So those are, that's that's where the value I think is. They can't see it right now, but the minute I announce a real a new business coming in, and I can show that in numbers, I think I think uh, we'll be the darlings of the industry again. Yeah. So which brings me to your shareholding. I looked at your annual report. You've been listed since 2005, and but it's just one or two local institutional funds uh, in your shareholding base and they contribute less than thir- less than 3%. So why aren't institutional funds locally actually more interested in your stock? And- we are at a, quite a loss to explain. You know, we are, as I said, the numbers are good. We're showing great, a great track record. We have a lot of experience. We are well known in the industry to provide an exemplary service. Uh, we have uh, long-term contracts. Um, we find it uh, quite amusing that uh, they don't seem to see that, you know, especially and on, at this at this rate, the dividend yield is very nice. Yeah. So um, I think one of the things that I'm trying to do now is obviously go to market and say, hey, you know, mm-hmm. we are here, we are here to stay, we do well, uh, we think there's a good future. And that's one of the reasons I'm sitting in front of you. Yeah. And I noticed that you've been buying back shares yourself um, recently in October and you've raised your stake to... Uh, close to 26%. Do you plan to raise your stake a bit further? Yeah, because it's something that I think is it's the, I think it's cheap. So I think it's uh, something that I'm quite happy to do. So that's actually my last question. Uh, what keeps you up uh, at night? At this moment in time, I'm, I'm you know, in a very nice position. I have a very good team. Um, we're in the business for a long time. We're very stable as a company. We have all our processes in place. So I've been I've been quite lucky over the last twenty five years to build a, a, a TikTok running sort of machine. So now the question is, how do we take this to the next level? What keeps me up at night is, you know, I need to be able to close some of these larger deals that we're doing, um, and uh, we still have the I think we still have the energy to be able to do that. And I think that's uh, from a, from an implementation perspective. I think we're fantastic. Uh, from a business development perspective, I think that we are wanting. <laughs> but I think uh, one of the issues that we are addressing now, and I think it'll be reflected pretty soon, is once the, the contracts start coming in, especially with some of these government deals that we're doing, and you can see that reflected in the numbers, then I think I'll sleep easier. 
On that note, thank you for your time. Today on the, on the Breakfast Grill was Datuk Sri Lo Arya Nayakam, CEO of Saikom MSC Berhad. I'm Chong Jensan, BFM 89.9. The Breakfast Grill is brought to you by U-Mobile, where unlimited potential begins. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.